Good to see everybody tonight. This is technically the first Wednesday of the quarter, but in our study, it's the last Wednesday of the study because I just had one more lesson than I had Wednesdays for. And since I'm teaching this class this quarter also, I took the liberty of finishing the book of Esther. I hope that uh, you have been enjoying studying these books as much as I have. The final books of history in the Old Testament, the end of the story of the history of Israel before Jesus brought into the world. And uh, it's all about restoration. Uh, when we open the book of Ezra, we see how Zerubbabel led the restoration of worship to the city of Jerusalem out of Babylonian captivity. And then in Ezra chapter 7, we are introduced to Ezra the scribe. And we read about the restoration of the law, the ethics of the people of Israel. Following Ezra, we studied Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is all about the restoration of the city. And now we're at Esther. Now, Esther on the timeline is really between Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, that would be between Ezra chapter 6 and 7. But Esther played a very important role, although she never visited Jerusalem as far as we know. But her role as queen of Persia was to restore the honor of the people of Israel. And uh, tonight we're going to finish up the story of how she did that. Now, last week we read about the death of Haman. Haman was the villain in the story. He threatened the Jews and he had this edict made for all the Jews to be exterminated throughout the land of Persia. But he died because Esther uncovered his plot and convinced her husband to um, confront him, and he was, he was hanged on the gallows, actually impaled on a gallows that he made for Mordecai. End of story? No, right? What's the problem? Why doesn't the story end right there? In Esther chapter 7. What's left? They couldn't reverse, they couldn't reverse that law, so something had to be done to keep from going forward with the extermination. That's exactly right. We've talked about the edicts and the laws of the Medes and Persians. Uh, there's a great example of it in the book of Daniel, where Daniel prays, and Darius the Mede, he sees that Daniel has violated the edict. The penalty of violating that edict was to be thrown in the lion's den. Darius didn't want to do it. He was king, but he couldn't change the law because once an edict is made in Persia, it sticks, no matter how small or how great the consequences. In Esther chapter 1, there's a little foreshadowing when they make some rule about etiquette at a feast. And uh, that law, that rule could not be broken. And uh, there are other rules mentioned here and there. There's another one in the book of Esther, a very minor thing. But no matter what it is, it can't be revoked. And so this is the problem. Now that Haman's gone, there's not necessarily anyone leading the charge against the Jewish people. But they're still in trouble. Their lives are in danger. And so Esther and Mordecai still need to lead the people to honor Let's uh, look at chapter 8 of the book of Esther. And I'm going to read about how Mordecai makes another edict to reverse the edict of, of Haman. 
And here's a, a portion of it on the screen, but I'm going to read uh, from verse 9 down through verse 12. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal studs, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now, some interesting wording there. Uh, first, look at the timing, though. If you do the math on this, this is just two months and ten days from Haman's edict. Not very long, and that makes it... Uh, eight months, 20 days before the slaughter was to occur. Plenty of time to prepare and get the word out that the Jews were legally given the right to defend themselves should they be attacked. Now, knowing Mordecai, he seems like a decent guy, right? But this edict, it's very, it's very graphic, very bloody, right? You go back over it and it says they can... It doesn't just say they can defend their lives, right? You have these words, destroy, kill, annihilate, uh, even women and children, plunder the goods. There's a very important reason why that language is used there. If you go back to Haman's edict, that's exactly how Haman worded his. And so it's, a, it's as close to a reversal of Haman's edict as Mordecai could get. That language was intentional. It was meant to say, this is in response to a law that should not have been made. This is going to undo what Haman did and what he did through the king. And so that's why it's worded in that way. It's not because he really wanted them to annihilate women and children and plunder their goods. It's really a, a law that allows them to defend themselves. But it had to have that, that relationship to Haman's edict so that people knew what was going on. Now look at uh, verses 15 and 16 of that same chapter, Esther chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. Mordecai is starting to look like a king. And uh, the city of Susa shouts and rejoices. And then I want you to pay close attention to verse 16. I think this is the key verse to the book of Esther, especially if we're looking at it from the standpoint of the restoration of the honor of the people of Israel. The Jews had light 
and gladness and joy and honor. There it is. After the edict was made, before the day of slaughter came and they defended themselves even, their honor was back. It's depicted in the royal robes and the crown of Mordecai, who was their de facto leader. And it's expressed in this beautiful verse that a lot of people don't even know is in the Bible. Light, gladness, joy, and honor. Now we see a lot of celebration. We, we saw some celebrating in the last, uh, last lesson when Haman was killed. A lot more celebrating to come, feasting. We understand the joy and the gladness. We understand the honor. They had been disgraced. They were going to be killed like animals. And now they were given the right to defend themselves. So we understand the honor. But how does light relate to gladness, joy, and honor? Now, I want to hear your thoughts on this. What do you think? What is the relationship in the Bible? Think about how the Bible uses the imagery of light. What is the relationship in the Bible between light and gladness, joy, and honor? What do you think it means? New hope. New hope right? Light, light is kind of like a sunrise. And every time the sun comes up, even though it always has, it's a good feeling if you've had a long night. And so that imagery, I think, is, is involved there. They had light before yeah. they were doomed to death and destruction, but now they had light. I think light and light go together in a lot of ways. Yeah, they do. In fact, uh, John writes a lot combining, uh, I think in John chapter 1, talking about Christ, in him was light and the light was the life of men light and life. It reminds me of the Apostle John, who was Jewish, and this had to be part of their vernacular. So I think you're right. It has a lot to do with life, new hope. What else is depicted by light in, in the scripture? God. It's more who else than what else. God is light, right? And Jesus, when he came, he said, I am the light of the world, John chapter 8, verse 12. And this is another case where we see God without him being named. Esther never uses the word God. We don't quite know why, but there are plenty of places where we can pick up on what's going on. And here's another. They had the presence of God with them. And their light was his light. There's a psalm that reads, this is Psalm 36, verse 9, with you is the fountain of life. So, Will, there's a connection between life and light. With you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. In your light do we see light. So that answers what is going on here. In addition to the hope and the life, they had God. They knew God was there. Because in his light, they were able to see light. I think Psalm 36.9 is commentary on, on that verse in Esther chapter 8, verse 16. Uh, real quick, uh, we could spend way too much time on this, but I, I did some digging on what comes from a life that has the light of God. And these are passages that mention God as light, or they mention God's presence with his people. And there's way too many to read, but you'll notice Isaiah 9 comes up over and over and over again. So one way we could quickly get through 
a lot of these is to turn over to Isaiah 9, which is a messianic prophecy that talks about God's presence with men through Emmanuel, God with us, which is something also from Isaiah. But uh, God's presence brings these things. Let's just read a few of these verses and, and see what it says. Look at uh, Isaiah 9, 2, and 3. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So there you see a lot of joy. You see victory. You see the danger is lifted. You see the hope. Skip down to verse 6. This is very messianic. For to us, a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So he brings peace, verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. Look at this, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So that's just a sample of the passages in prophecy and in the Psalms that talk about what life is like whenever you have the light. Not just any light, the light. Remember the psalm again that says, Psalm 36 verse 9, In your light do we have light. So when we have God, we have light. And look at the life of light. Joy, peace, righteousness, justice. We'll talk about justice in a little while. Freedom. You have growth. Others uh, more. You have confidence. Security. Um, healing. And not just physical healing here, but this is more about spiritual healing. The light brings comfort. Um, consolation. And glory. You know, Esther 8.16, it uses the word honor, but it's talking about the glory that came back to the people of Israel. And then, as Christians, we know the promise of Ephesians 1.3, that in Him, all, there, all spiritual blessings are found in Him in the heavenly places. And so, because of His presence, we get to enjoy all the covenant blessings. This is life now. God is present in our lives now. The, one of the last things Jesus said before his ascension is, Behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. He's with us now. And we look forward to the day when he will be with us in a special way. Where, when he will be with us fully and completely. We're not quite there yet, but we do have the light. It also reminds you of what John says in 1 John 1, 1.7. If, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So we're very familiar with this imagery of light. And uh, I think it's good to pause and to look at some Old Testament prophecies and psalms that talk about what life can be like if you have God's presence in your life. And so we'll move on from that. But um, I want to see what happens in, in uh, Persia after all this. You know, the Jews were considered a strange people. 
Uh, they were avoided, and then it was easy enough for Haman to make an edict for their extermination. But through the work of Mordecai and Esther and the restoration of honor, attitudes suddenly changed towards the Jews. Look at chapter 8, verse 17. In every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country, this is the, the Persian Empire, declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. What are we looking at here? These are conversions, right? I believe we're looking at conversions. There are two things that are said. First, it says that the people of the country, now I know there's another way to read this. It could be people who were Jews but had been in hiding as Esther had been in hiding, saw the bravery of Esther and came out of hiding. But it's talking about the people of the country. So it sounds like people who were not born Jews were declaring themselves Jews. Now, did they go through a conversion process or were they just, you know, to, these days, if it's trendy to be something, people will suddenly declare themselves to be that thing. I don't want to get too specific here, but you, you know enough about what I'm talking about. And maybe there were people who weren't really Jews saying, I'm a Jew, I'm a Jew. But I, it sounds like they were becoming Jews because the next thing that is said is, fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, Remember what Haman's wife said? Haman goes home and uh, he's crying to his wife about Mordecai and how um, the king had honored him. And look at chapter 6, verse 13. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people... You will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. What is that? I think that's related, don't you, to chapter 8, verse 17, where the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Any ideas on what the nature of this fear was? I mean, the Jews weren't mightier than Persians with regard to war, were they? I mean, the Persian army was the largest army in the world. They had suffered a humiliating defeat in Greece, but still the Jews were no match for them militarily. It reminds me of, uh, reminds me of Joshua and Rahab talking to the spies, uh, talking to them about the reputation of the, the Jews. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Yeah, she said, our hearts melted when we heard these things. Um, that kind of mystique was still following them around. James. Well, these people are, are accustomed, in fact, were converted to the belief that God was the supreme God. Yes, I think that's good. And I, and I think that ties in with the example Mackenzie gave, because Rahab felt that way, for sure. And there, the fear of the Lord has... You can go in two directions with that. And Jericho and Rahab are a great example of that. You can go in the direction of Rahab, who says, God is powerful, God is dangerous, but God is good, and he will care for me. Or you can go in the direction of the people of Jericho, 
who thought just God is powerful, God is dangerous, and we're dead. You know, it's, it's about faith. Rahab had faith, and James uses her as an example of faith in James 2. And the rest of the people of Jericho did not. And what James uh, was giving us here when he was uh, explaining this, I think he was spot on. The, the fear of the Jews was the fear of God. And that's what had fallen upon them. And you see it hinted at by Haman's wife. And then it, it comes to fruition here in these conversions that we're reading about at the end of chapter 8. So eight months go by. And we come to the battle. And we read about this in Esther chapter 9. So let's start reading verse 1 of Esther 9. In the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, the last month on their calendar, on the thirteenth day of the same, this is when Haman's edict said that they were to be killed, and also when Mordecai's edict said they could defend themselves, thirteenth day of Adar, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Now that's another key phrase in Esther. The reverse occurred. Because over and over again you see the reverse occurring. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but I have some examples on that. So God is bringing the opposite of what the enemies expected. Look at verse 2. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them, the fear of God, the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. It's very interesting how... Mordecai and the Jews are interchangeable here. It shows what a great leader he was, but it's also to be interpreted, again, I go back to what James said, it's, it's the fear of God that we're talking about here. These people were afraid. Some of them fought, and some of them had faith and joined forces with God's people. So we see that going on. Um, now they... They were only defending themselves. Later on, I think I was looking for the verse here. Verse 11 says, no, it's not verse 11. Verse 10 of chapter 9 says they laid no hand on the plunder. You know, Mordecai's edict said they could do that, but they, they didn't lay their hands on the plunder. They were merely defending themselves. So you see that all that language in Mordecai's edict about annihilation was there just to reverse Haman's edict. It wasn't to be taken literally. But they did kill several who had attacked them. If you look in verse 6, in Susa the citadel, the, the capital of, of Persia at that time, uh, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Uh, among these were the ten sons of Haman. Remember, one of the things that Haman bragged about to his wife and his friends was the number of his sons. And we learn in verse 10 of Esther 9 that he had 10 sons. Uh, they were slain, but they did not lay any hand on the plunder. Uh, it wasn't enough time, according to Queen Esther, 
to take care of all the enemies. She heard of rumblings in the city where they were going to continue to try to fight the Jews. And so she asked the king for an extra day and he granted her another day. So on the 14th day of the 12th month, they fought again and killed another 300. Throughout all the territory, and I should have had a map to remind you how large the Persian Empire was, but throughout all the territory, uh, the Jews killed 75,000. So there was a lot of hatred toward them, despite all that had occurred eight months prior with the death of Haman and Mordecai's edict. Several people were still planning on this extermination of the Jews, but they were unsuccessful. 800 people taken down in the capital city, 75,000 throughout the whole empire. It was a great victory for the Jews. Uh, as another precaution, Esther requested in verse 13 that Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. And again, this was, was not um, a hangman's gallows like we see in westerns or like we picture, but uh, just a pole with a sharp end that they impaled these guys on. And uh, I take it that they were already dead and this was just to disgrace them as a contrast to the honor restored of the Jews. Again, the reverse occurred. These boys who grew up thinking that they would be honored were dishonored in the worst kind of way. Did you want to say something, Linda? Go ahead. Yes, yeah, I believe so, just to discredit them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the things that evolved into crucifixion. The Persians invented crucifixion. You see the early primitive version of it here. The Romans took it and they used it to demonstrate their power and to disgrace their enemies. That's why the Jews wanted Jesus crucified, because they wanted a public spectacle to disgrace him. And it's very notable that uh, Jesus was buried in Joseph's tomb because that wasn't the customary way to deal with crucified uh, victims. They usually stayed on the cross until their bodies decomposed in the elements and with the birds of prey. But um, in fact, archeologists have only found the remains of one crucified victim, although thousands were crucified in Rome. And, and the reason is that they were never buried so that, that's another thing that we just pass over when we read about the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that he was, he was um, crucified, he was buried, and he was raised. And we, we talk about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We don't talk much about his burial. But his burial, number one, established that he was truly dead because he was buried for three days and three nights. But number two, it showed honor toward the Son of God, who should have been treated with honor after he was dishonored on the cross. Mark. Oh, definitely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, not to get too morbid, but what if you learned that after your death, your body would just be thrown out in the street? I mean... It would be awful to think about dying, but even though some people say, well, I don't care, I won't be here anymore. No, you, you would care because you would think about your family, you'd think about your reputation, you'd think about your kids. And, and you know, we want to treat the dead with respect. And so this 
was to show the absolute most disrespect toward Haman's sons that he wanted to show toward Mordecai, James. Exactly, yeah. It took the dead bodies. They weren't killed by impaling, but that was, that was to disgrace them, um, to make sure that they did not rise to power later on. All right, so the battle was fought, 75,000 killed, 800 killed in the city. Uh, now we come to another feast. You know, in the book of Esther, we have lots of feasts, but this is, this is one to remember. Uh, this is the origin of a Jewish feast that's still being celebrated by the Jewish people called Purim. And Purim comes from the Persian word per, I'm not really sure how to pronounce it, it's spelled P-U-R. And we saw it very early on, I think at the end of Esther chapter 2. Do you remember what per is, P-U-R? Yeah, maybe dice, the lots that were cast to decide on what day this extermination should take place. And uh, it was probably the providence of God that it fell on the 12th month when they were trying to decide in the first month when this would happen. Probably as they turned the pages of a calendar, they would cast these lots, waiting on it to fall on a particular day, waiting on from some sign, supernatural sign, and they took it to mean that there was some kind of divine mandate, which there wasn't, for the Jews to be killed on the 12th month, the 13th day. But what that did is that gave Mordecai, Esther, and the people time to act. Uh, what if it had fallen on you know, the first month, just a few days after the edict was made? I don't know if they would have had the time. So I think it's providential. But uh, this new holiday is declared a day of feasting, actually two days of feasting. Look at uh, verse 17. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. That's the day they fought back. And on the 14th day they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that day uh, that a day of feasting and gladness. So Remember, Esther gave those in the capital city an extra day to fight. So all over the countryside, they're celebrating on the 14th. Um, this is a minor point, but it helps you understand why Purim is, is celebrated two days. The, the people in the city, they had to have another day, so they celebrate on the 15th. So now Purim is the 14th, 15th day of Adar. And Esther had declared a fast for the 13th day. So some people even um, observe Esther's fast on the 13th. And then Purim is the 14th and 15th. It's usually on our calendar, February or March. And um, it's a time of gift giving. It's a time to help the poor. And of course, as with all the um, feasts of the Jews, lots of eating. And so this was a later feast to be developed. Um, after that, there, there was Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication, Feast of Lights, that came up in the time between the Testaments. But this is the last feast established in the Old Testament age, observed by the Jews. 
look at verse 22. The days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday. So on Purim, they don't dwell on um, the threat. They don't dwell on the demise of their enemy. They dwell on the salvation God brought them. They look at the positive aspects of it. And uh, that's what they celebrate. That's the, the focus. Well, that leaves chapter 10. And you might be looking at the clock and saying, 10 minutes to cover a whole chapter, but there's only three verses in chapter 10. This is one of the strangest endings in a biblical book that we have because uh, you're looking for a resolution and the storytelling has been so great so far. You know, we've got these exciting characters and we've got, you know, the plot. We've talked about plot lines and things in here and how Esther follows these plots, has this great beginning, this great inciting incident, all these progressive complications. Then we have a crisis point where you have to choose between two bad choices. You know, if I perish, I perish. You have the climax where uh, Esther confronts Haman and, and then everything just starts falling into place and you think you're going to have some happily ever after in chapter 10, and you kind of do. But one of the things that you notice first off is Esther isn't mentioned at all. It's all about Mordecai. And if you can't start off anything more boring than this, it starts with a tax. A tax. Look at verse 1. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. Did somebody slip that in? I mean, what, we've just celebrated a feast. The Jews have been saved. And we're about to get to Mordecai. So why are we talking about a tax? And what most people think is, if you're reading this in that time, you have been accustomed to the Persians coming to your house and looting your goods and plundering your wealth and taking things by force, and through the influence of Mordecai and the benevolence of his god, Xerxes, who was very hard-headed and ruthless, had done something we don't think of as benevolent, but he had issued a tax where the people of their own will could come and pay their taxes. Now, these are still forced taxation, but it's better than a soldier coming without warning and just taking whatever he wants. It's also regulated, which uh, plundering is not regulated at all. So most scholars think the reason verse 1 of chapter 10 is, is in there is to show Xerxes softening up a little through the influence of Mordecai and Esther. Look at verse 2. All the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. That's why we relate that to the taxation being benevolent. This is not the way Haman thought the book would end. Haman thought he would be the one at the end who was popular and great among the people. And instead it was Mordecai. Go back to that phrase again. The reverse was true. And it's been that way. We call it irony. It's been that way throughout the whole book. Uh, you know, just when uh, the Jewish people seem to be undone, 
a girl is promoted to queen who happens to be a Jew. Just when this edict is made to exterminate the Jews, it happens to fall on the 12th month. Just when um, Haman is coming to ask for Mordecai's head, the king happens to remember a good deed that Mordecai did on his behalf. Over and over and over again, the reverse became true. And we might call that a plot twist. We might uh, call it irony, dramatic irony. But what it is, is justice. Because unrighteousness is the world turned upside down. Wickedness is the world turning things upside down. Reality reversed. And what justice is, is God coming and aligning things and making them right again. And we, we know there's a great day coming, Acts 17, 30, and 31, when God will judge the world by the one he has appointed, by Jesus Christ the righteous, and what is Judgment Day? It's where God rights all wrongs. Everything upside down, he's going to turn it right side up. All the perversions and crookedness that characterize this world will be straightened, straight, made straight and made right. The righteous shall be rewarded, the wicked will be punished. And that's, that's what we're seeing here. It's not a plot twist. It's not irony. It's strange because it's not the way our world operates. It's a different rule than our world goes by. But it's the justice of God. And it shows his character. God is just. And if you're going through things that aren't right, that aren't fair, they may be going on now, but God is not happy with that. In his nature, he's just, and he passed that on to us. And every time we feel unfairness and we... We're upset about injustice in the world. That's us being made in God's image. And one day he promises all things will be made right. So think about the timeline of this book. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. After Esther, Nehemiah and Ezra go down to Jerusalem. They establish the law. The temple has been built. Nehemiah reinforces the walls and builds the walls in 52 days. In about 444 B.C., he goes back to Persia, and the book of history closes on the Jewish people, except for, except for the little prophecy of Malachi. Malachi falls a little bit later, near the end of the 5th century, maybe into the 4th century B.C. And uh, we sadly open up Malachi's prophecy to see that the people have forgotten all of this honor and light we see them celebrating at the end of the book of Esther. They are bringing corrupt sacrifices to God's altar. They are oppressing the poor. They're divorcing their wives, something Nehemiah fought very hard against. And Ezra... They're not respecting marriage. They're robbing God of his tithes. And God warns them they're a people for a particular purpose. And I want to, as we talk about this period of Israel's history, just close this whole class, actually in Malachi, with a few verses that look toward the one who's coming. Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger 
and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So God says, I'm sending a messenger to prepare the way for me. Now later on, in chapter 4, we read this in verse 4. Remember, it's a key word in Malachi, remember the covenant. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And then he says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. And thus the old covenant closes with the promise of the return of Elijah. 400 years later, this man comes out of the wilderness in a camel hair cloak, leather belt around his waist, eating locusts and wild honey. A voice crying in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he points to another man, a Galilean from Nazareth. And he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He must increase and I must decrease. It's John the Baptist, the messenger of the Lord, the Lord Jesus. They had come through the people that Esther and Mordecai and Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel led to Jerusalem. They had restored the worship, the law of Moses, the city, and the honor of the people. For that moment, for John to come prepare the way, to bring the valleys up, bring the mountains down, to prepare the way for the Lord to come, who would take away the sins of the world. And if you don't read the Old Testament like that, you're reading it wrong. Because it's all about Him. That's the point of the whole thing. And that's the point of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Uh, it's about 8 o'clock, so we're out of time. Uh, let me give you a preview for next week, the rest of this quarter. We're going to be studying the topic of angels. So uh, bear with me on that one. I've never taught that before. Looking forward to learning some things. Hope that we can learn together on Wednesday nights. Thanks a lot. Have a good evening.